Father in heaven, I, I pray that you would grant me, you grant me the gift of endurance this morning. I pray that you would help me with clarity. I pray that you would help all of us as a church as we consider verses that I, I don't know how very much we dwell on. We do not love the world or the things in the world. Lord, we need this message as a church. If we are going to be a church that is effective in reaching the world, we must not love the world. And until we are troubled by that biblical affirmation, we're going to struggle. So please come and provide the gift of illumination. Holy Spirit, would you pick us up for these moments as we study your word, create faith, create repentance and sorrow over sin, lead us to the Savior who's making all things new. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning represents week 12 in a 14-week preaching series. The series has been entitled, The Most Excellent Way, A Biblical Study of God's Love and Ours. During Lent, we did a deep dive into what the Bible says about the love of God. As a church, we have marveled as we've studied the character of God. We have studied the intra-Trinitarian love between the Father and the Holy Spirit. We've thought about the Old Testament commands of God, God's law as a legislation of God's love. And then we got down to business. Because from that point, for the next three weeks going up to Easter, we spoke of the love of God displayed for the world in the cross and resurrection of Jesus. St. Augustine has been attributed as saying that the cross is the pulpit of God's love. The cross is the pulpit of God's love. Don't ever, ever doubt that God loves this world. Don't ever doubt that. God showed his love to the world and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And if you ever wanted just an ongoing prayer request for this church, day by day, week by week, year after year, as we make our way through our mission as a church, uh, let it be the prayer request of Paul in Ephesians chapter 3. Pray that God would grant us the grace to comprehend Christ's incomprehensible love for us. Pray for that, because we need that. Pray that God would grant us the grace to comprehend Christ's incomprehensible love for us. Because when that begins to take root in our souls, we begin to learn how to love ourselves. And since Easter, throughout Easter season, which culminates this month... We've been studying our response as a congregation to God's love. So the Lenten season was about God's love for us, but Easter season has been about our love, our love for God in worship, our love for one another in Christian fellowship, 
And then beginning this morning, we set our sights on the final frontier, uh, our love for lost people. You may be relatively new to our midst and be thinking, week 12 in a 14-week series? It's almost over. Why pay attention? Here's why. Though this is the home stretch of our sermon series, this is also the launching pad for what's going to happen in the life of this church, Lord willing, over the next season. Through the summer months. On Sunday, June 2nd, we'll begin a 13-week series on the topic of outreach. That series is called Spreading the Fragrance of the Knowledge of Him, a Biblical Study of Missions and Evangelism. And so this text today is going to kick the door open for us to this topic as a church. But as we begin to consider what the Bible says about outreach, we want to make sure that we see, if we don't already, the vital connection between our current topic, love, and the next topic, missions and evangelism. The first one drives the second. In fact, if the first one isn't driving the second, something has gone radically wrong somewhere. Love is the engine that powers cross-cultural missions. Love is the spark that ignites the flame of evangelism, which is what makes the words of the Apostle John in 1 John 2, 15 to 17, all the more captivating and, frankly, befuddling. John 3.16 says, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God so loved the world. But 1 John 2.15 says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Anybody ever scratch their heads on that one? Hope so. It's the same author. That's what gives me hope, actually. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Sounds like a little dissonance when you compare it to John 3.16, right? Is there a conflict here? We have a disagreement? One Christian author posed the issue this way. He said, in brief... God loves the world, and Christians had better not. You feel that? What's going on here? Here's what I think John is saying. You have it there in your outline. It's today's big idea. If we are going to win the world to Christ, we must not love the world, but Christ. If we're going to win the world to Christ, we must not love the world but Christ. Now, I don't know if that makes verse 15 any clearer to you. Perhaps it does. Part of the reason why a verse like this is so puzzling to us is because I think of two reasons. The first part of the problem is we aren't nearly as familiar with what the Bible says about what God hates as opposed to what the Bible says about what God loves. That'd be the first step. And the second thing that we need a lot of clarification on as evangelical Christians 
is the pervasive biblical teaching about worldliness. Worldliness. Those two issues contribute to our confusion when we come to a text like 1 John 2.15. So let's first seek to understand what John means when he talks about the world. The world. He uses the word six times in three verses here. Two of them are here in verse 15. If we can get verse 15 right, I think verses 16 and 17 are just going to unpack beautifully for us. But we've got to figure out verse 15. So let's spend a good chunk of time here, and then the two points in your outline are going to be applications for today's central thrust. If we're going to win the world to Christ, we must not love the world, but Christ. So what's the world in John's vocabulary? What does he mean? Well, in John's gospel, we get a window into this. John 1.10 says that the world was made through Christ. That's John 1.10. The world was made through Christ. John 1.10 also says that the world did not know him. John 3.19 says, This is the judgment. Light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. Jesus says in John 7.7, The world hates me. Because I testify about it that its works are evil. Did you know Jesus said that? I was startled to read that this week. I'm sure I've read that somewhere. John 7, 7. The world hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. In John 12, 31, Jesus calls Satan the ruler of this world. He says the same thing in John 14, 30. In the letter we're studying this morning, 1 John 5, 19, John says the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. In John 14, 27, we're told that the world offers an alternative peace to the peace that Jesus offers, saying peace, peace, where there is no peace. And finally, maybe the greatest indictment of the world is in Jesus' high priestly prayer. It's in John 17, Verse 9, it's something that I don't know that we'd frankly believe if Jesus didn't just say it. Jesus says in John 17, 9, I am not praying for the world. So what is the world in John's vocabulary? Well, when John urges us here in verse 15 not to love the world, we've got to keep in mind all those ways he uses the word. Uh, One New Testament scholar explains, the word world for John refers not to a, a big place with lots of people in it, but to a very bad place with lots of bad people in it. Now don't forget, John 3.16 is absolutely true, unbelievably, shockingly, stunningly, gloriously true. God so loved the world. Can you imagine anything more mind-boggling? God loved the world this way. He, he sent his only son. And whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God loved a world that was totally indifferent to him at best and thoroughly aligned in hatred against him at worst. 
This is why our love for the world, if we have it, needs profound qualification. Should we love the world? The answer to that question lies in how we define both love and world. But if we take our cues from John, we will learn to love the right way. One more quote. This is from Don Carson. He says, God's love for the world is commendable because it manifests itself in awesome self-sacrifice. Our love for the world is repulsive when it lusts for evil participation. God's love for the world is praiseworthy because it brings the transforming gospel to it. Our love for the world is ugly because we seek to be conformed to the world. God's love for the world issues in certain individuals being called out from the world and into fellowship with Christ's followers. Our love for the world is sickening where we wish to be absorbed into the world. Do you see? So why does John say in the back half of verse 15, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him? Why is that true? It's true because of how small our capacities are. No one can serve two masters. Our souls are not designed to kneel at the altar of our creator and the fallen creation at the same time. Not in the same soul. We've got to make our choice. And John is warning us here. He's saying, don't throw your love away on the world. Don't do it. If we're going to win the world to Christ, we must not love the world, but Christ. Now, I see some heads bobbing, which means some are tracking with me, but I know some aren't. And in case you're thinking that not to love the world is evangelistic suicide, I want to invite you into John's next two verses as application points for the first. Uh, Two applications, both of which are relevant to evangelism. Effective evangelism. Effective evangelism entails that first, we can't be hooked on the very sins from which we are calling the world to turn. We can't be hooked on the very sins from which we are calling the world to turn. 22 years ago, Jason Patrick and Jennifer Jason Lee played the lead roles in a movie called Rush. It was not a particularly memorable film, although Eric Clapton provided a stellar soundtrack. It was not a particularly redemptive film, one that I watched in my Before Christ days. But the plot of the movie couldn't be any more relevant to this point. In the movie... Uh, these two actors play undercover narcotics officers who go undercover in order to expose a drug dealer. But along the way, the cops become addicts themselves. They get hooked on their own stuff, and they get lost in this world of drug addiction. And what's worse is that they end up planting evidence in order to get their man, and they get in all kinds of trouble for it. That's tragic enough, but it's even more tragic to learn that that movie is actually based on a true story. 
You can read about it. I read about it this week online. It's the 1977 Tyler, Texas drug scandal. The corruption in that police force eventually led to massive reforms in the evidentiary process as well as significant changes in U.S. law and law enforcement. As police officers, they failed in their mission because they became a part of what they were attempting to rescue. And it's not just a movie. It actually happened. And 1 John 2, 15 and 16 isn't just theological theory up in the air. It actually happens. That's why John warns Christians of this. Don't love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For, you see the causal connection there? It's very important. For, all that's in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, pride of life, is not from the Father, but from the world. And the subtitle of this sermon is the, the Peril of Loving What God Hates. Now, I've stopped short of explicitly saying that God hates the world. I stopped short of that because the Bible stops short of that. You'll never find a verse like that in Scripture. God hates the world. It doesn't say that. But the Bible does say that God hates these things in verse 16 with a flaming passion. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life. Proverbs 6, verses 16 to 19 says, there are six things the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that Shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. It's a very similar list to the one we see in verse 16. Desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, pride of life. And these three are the fuel that our culture runs on. This is very, very powerful stuff. And though if you are born again, you are indeed a new creation in Jesus Christ, don't think that you can move into the world on mission for Jesus without a battle plan, without putting on the armor You will become a part of what you are hoping to transform, if not. A.W. Tozer reminds us of the indwelling sin within each and every one of us when he says, quote, The ancient curse will not go out painlessly. The tough old miser within us will not lie down and die in obedience to our command. He must be torn out of our heart like a plant from the soil. He must be extracted in agony and blood like a tooth from a jaw. Friends of Mount Evangelical Free Church, if we want to reach them, we must not be like them. That's the point of the Sermon on the Mount. 
when we move into this world, and we ought to, we want to offer this world something other than its reflection. What we win people with, we will win them too. We can't be hooked on the very sins that we are calling the world to turn from. If we are going to win the world to Christ, we must not love the world but Christ. Now, I've refrained from application here. You don't have to say anything. What sin are you thinking about right now in your life that you cherish that's of the world? That's the one I'm talking about. And that's the one that I haven't named, but that the Holy Spirit is naming right now that you must turn from in order to have a viable witness for Christ. Second application. Effective evangelism entails that we remember that worldliness is a trade down and godliness is a trade up. Effective evangelism entails that we remember that worldliness is a trade down and godliness is a trade up. Notice then that in these three verses, there's not a lot here. There's just a central command in verse 15. Do not love the world. It's not exhortation. He's telling us not to do something. The Puritans would call it dehortation. We never use that word. He's dehorting us. Don't love the world. And then in verses 16 and 17, we're given two solid, pervasive, persuasive biblical reasons not to. The first reason's in verse 16, and we just heard it. You'll ruin your witness. These things are not from the Father. The second reason is here in verse 17, and it's a very practical one. The world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. In other words, worldliness, in the final analysis, is actually a trade down. And godliness is a trade up. So the first side of that equation as we close here, worldliness is a trade down. One of the best definitions I've ever heard of worldliness goes like this. You want to know what worldliness is. Here it is. Worldliness is whatever makes sin look normal and righteousness look strange. Worldliness is whatever makes sin look normal and righteousness look strange. Godliness should not have to apologize for itself. Why is worldliness a trade down? Well, John tells us in verse 17, the world is passing away along with its desires. Now, John is serving us big time in this verse. This is, this is huge. Recall our study of Psalm 16 a handful of weeks ago. Remember the final verse in Psalm 16? You make known to me the path of life, and in your presence is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Seth preached that passage so well for us, so faithfully. If you remember the crescendo of that sermon, because it's the crescendo of the text, is that verse. Psalm 1611. In your presence is fullness of joy, and at your right hand 
our pleasures forevermore. This is what God offers us in Christ. Not just fire insurance from eternal punishment, but fullness of joy and pleasures forever. And what does this world offer? Well, in the words of Jeremiah the prophet, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Jeremiah 2.13, My people, my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So what does God offer us in Christ? Fullness forever. What does the world offer? Leaky sin buckets for a limited time. Mount Free Church, I hope that those of you who attended one or both of the memorial services yesterday were as affected as I was when I was thinking about these things. Memorial celebrations, when they are homegoings, as both of those were yesterday, make you feel the truth of verse 17 with unparalleled power. The world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. So remember that worldliness is a trade down and godliness is a trade up. If we are going to win the world to Christ, we must not love the world. But Christ... Effective evangelism entails that we cannot be hooked on the very sins from which we are calling the world to turn from. And effective evangelism entails that worldliness is a trade down. Godliness is a trade up. Now, you might ask the question, does the the Bible ever tell us anything even close to loving the world? That we should love people far from Jesus? And the answer is, Yes. And that's next week. We have one more sermon in this series, and it's 2 Corinthians 5, where Paul says, so here's the setup. Your evangelistic witness, if it is hampered by anything, probably is hampered by something in the realm of fear, anxiety, or worry. What people will think about you, what people will say to you or do to you. Fear. What, what conquers fear? Love. Perfect love casts out fear. What in the world would, would give you boldness and courage to roll the dice and risk and try to have a hard conversation with someone you've never talked to about Jesus before? You know what would do that? Love. Second Corinthians 5 says, the love of Christ controls us. The love of Christ compels us. I hear lots of talk in evangelism about technique and cool and all kinds of things that don't matter. I guarantee you that love will get you to walk across the room at that party. I guarantee you that love will get you to walk across the street to that neighbor that you have never built a relationship with, though you've lived in your house for 15 years. 
I guarantee you that love will encourage you to take advantage of one minute at the water cooler tomorrow morning with somebody. Love would do that. And we'll go there next week. But today the message is that Christ died for the sins of the world. May we as a church not live for them. Let's pray. Father in heaven, the Bible is strange. The first key to winning the world is not loving the world. That doesn't come from us. That comes from you. Father, I pray that you would help us to be troubled by apparent contradictions that are simply just that, just apparent. John 3.16 is true. 1 John 2.15 is true. We are not to love the world that you love. And the love of Christ controls us and compels us to go into the world. Help us to mull on these things, Father. Would you help us as we meet in our families and in our community groups and our discipling relationships to pour over these verses. Lord, we just kick the door open here. There's so much more conversation to have this week over this text. Grant us the grace to care very, very much about 1 John 2, 15 to 17 and its vital relationship to effective evangelism. And would you surprise us as we are faithful? Would you make us fruitful? In Jesus' name, amen.